Well, I want to begin today with a little survey. And I just want you to understand that there is no wrong answer to the question that I'm about to ask you. But I need you to be completely transparent and honest in your answer. How many of you in the room right now are naturally, just by your inborn characteristics and traits, how many of you are naturally savers? Can I just see a show of hand? If you're a, I'm talking about you're a, a penny saved as a penny earned, that kind of a person. That's awesome. That's great. I'm not talking about a hoarder, but I mean somebody who, who saves. Oh, now hands are going up all over the room. Okay. Now, by the same token, how many of us in the room are naturally spenders? Can I see a show of hands? If you're just kind of natural, again, there's not necessarily a wrong answer to this. Some of you are thinking right now that I'm wrong in saying there's not a wrong answer. But there's not. I think that's just kind of part of how God wires different people up differently. It's really funny. In our household, Julie is by nature a saver. She is so disciplined, especially when it comes to finances. I'm much more the pull-the-trigger spender type. And it's really fascinating because this time of year, in our household, we go through a radical reversal of roles. Something happens in my bride. This, this penny-saved is a penny-earned kind of gal, and she loses her mind when it comes to Christmas. Now, obviously, this is not a marriage-threatening situation, or I wouldn't be talking about it publicly or so lightheartedly, but it really is a fascinating phenomenon. I, I, we've been married for 27-plus years, and I still cannot wrap my head around how radically things change once Halloween rolls around. And I say Halloween because that is, of course, in our household, the official launch of the Christmas season. And Julie just, she's like, yes, we need that, we need that, and we need that, and I think we need some of that. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And all of a sudden, I become kind of the sane saver in the family relationship. And I'm the one who's kind of putting the woe up on all of the Christmas spending. Now, regardless of the season, it doesn't matter if you're a saver or a spender. The fact of the matter is that we are all right and we are all wrong. Every single one of us. Because the fact is that sometimes the savers amongst us can, can push their thriftiness too far. And it, and it can be, it's possible, that that, that that thriftiness can become miserly or, or stingy by the same token. Those of us who are spenders, we can push that too far and become materialistic and, and wasteful and over the top. And what is true of our lives materially is every single bit as true spiritually. The fact of the matter is that some of us live life like the primary purpose is to pursue as much pleasure or profit, power or prestige as possible in the given time that we have in this life, kind of that whoever dies with the most toys wins mentality. By the same token, there are some of us spiritually who feel like the path to fulfillment and satisfaction in life is to obey all the rules Never speed and toe the line in every single situation. You are the rule followers of life. And the fact is, spiritually, just like materially, we are all right and we are all wrong. 
The reality is that Jesus Christ offers a third way to fulfillment and satisfaction. And more specifically, he offers himself as the third way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who delivers us to that fulfillment and that satisfaction that we're created for. And in that fulfillment and in that satisfaction, we find the peace and the power of a life lived in relationship with God in Jesus Christ. This is the heartbeat of the series that we started last week called Welcome Home, giving the perfect gift. Because the greatest gift you will ever receive or give is a sincere, heartfelt welcome home where you provide someone a safe place, a place to be loved and liked, a place for them to belong is the greatest gift we will ever know in this world. And so that's why we're talking about this as we prepare for Christmas, as we prepare, prepare for our celebrations next week as a church, that we might get in our minds this idea that we have been given this homecoming. We have been given this place to belong by Jesus, by God himself. And therefore, we are called to enjoy it and to give it away as much as possible. I want you to turn to your neighbor with passion and Christmas enthusiasm. Tell them, get your welcome home on. Jesus talked about this idea and this concept of belonging throughout his earthly ministry. But there's a moment in time that is so seared into the consciousness of what Jesus talked about that we're going to spend our time today looking at the story of the prodigal son. It's recorded in the book of Luke, chapter 15, the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of a man who had two sons. And one day, the younger of the two sons approached his father and essentially demanded his inheritance. Whatever he was due upon his father's death, he wanted it now. He didn't want to wait for dad to die. He wanted to receive his inheritance now. And the father, realizing the, the heart of his son, relented. And he gave him his inheritance. Now, this was the younger of the two sons. And so the older son, as such, in that day and age, would have been due a double portion of inheritance compared to his younger brother. So this younger brother receives a full one-third of his father's estate. And as Jesus tells the story, a few days later, he packs all of his things, takes his inheritance, and moves to a far country. He just leaves home. He, go on, take the money and run, hoo-hoo, and goes to the far country. And Jesus, in telling the story, says that when he gets to the distant country, he begins to absolutely, in the original Greek, it means to whoop it up. He buys a turbo camel and a convertible chariot. He starts living fast and loose. And soon enough, he squanders his entire inheritance. Gone. And about the same time that he squanders his inheritance, a massive famine comes over the far country. And he is reduced to survival literally by hiring himself out to feed and to slop hogs. 
Jesus, in telling this parable, this, this allegory, says, as a matter of fact, he envied the pigs what they were eating. He, he wanted to fill his own stomach with the pods that the pigs were consuming. But then Jesus pivots the story. Look, look at what, how the story pivots in, in verse 15 of Luke chapter 15. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, man, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. As I said, this is, of course, the story of the prodigal son. Now, most of us are at least familiar with kind of the rough outline of the story. The word prodigal has come to mean to us really kind of a, a wayward child, someone who has strayed and, and gone off to a far country metaphorically. But the word prodigal actually means something very, very specific and very different from a wayward child or a wayward follower of Jesus. The word prodigal actually means recklessly extravagant. Recklessly extravagant. So that's why you can see why this younger son gets that title. He moves to the far country and begins to live recklessly, extravagantly. And it's against that backdrop that Jesus says, while he is there slopping hogs, he comes to his senses. Now, it's important, I think, for us to understand the context of this. When, when the younger brother asked for his inheritance, in, in that context, we, we read this story through the lens of our own culture and customs, and we can kind of identify with the hurt of a father who's been spurned. But the reality is, in that day and age, the dishonor done to this father by the son is so great we have trouble really understanding it. What he was essentially saying to his father when he asked for that inheritance, he was saying, Dad, I want to live my life as though you were dead. My inheritance only comes to me upon your death, so I want to begin to live that way now. And he was communicating this to his father, and the father, very interestingly, let this younger brother have his way. He, he let him go and gave him the inheritance. When Jesus says that he came to his senses, in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, it, it's actually translated when he came to himself. When he came to himself. You see, whenever we chase the things of this world, whenever we pursue passion or profit or power or prestige, whenever we go after those things more than we go after God, we are actually walking away from our truest, realist self, the self that we were created by God to be, to experience, to live in, honor, and enjoy relationship with God. And this allegory, this parable of Jesus shows the son coming to the end of himself and then coming to his senses. 
Have you ever, have you ever just kind of gotten to the end? We, we call it being at our wit's end. Have you ever gotten to the end of yourself? You don't have to necessarily raise your hand or stand up and testify. But I think most of us who have been alive for more than about 45 minutes have come to a place where we realize we don't have all the answers. Where we realize in and of ourselves we are not sufficient. That we need help. And it's, I believe, at that point that we come to ourselves. We, we come to our senses. You see, the path of the older brother and the younger brother are not that far apart. Whether we pursue pleasure and profit or rule following and towing the line, self-indulgence or self-validation, the problem is both orbit around the self. Both are consumed with what we do more than who God is. And the son, the younger son, the younger brother is beginning to realize this when he runs out of money, when he runs out of friends, when he runs out of food, when he comes to the bottom and he starts to remember home. He, he starts to remember his roots. He starts to remember where he grew up. And in thinking about this, he, he knows that he's forfeited his rights as the son because remember, he told his dad, I want to live as though you were dead. But he starts to think about his father's servants. We, we understand by context that Jesus tells the story, this probably was a wealthy man. And the son begins to remember his dad's servants saying, they had plenty of food to eat. I, I remember watching them eat maybe, you know, at the servant's table, but maybe, just maybe, I could go back home and throw myself on my father's mercy and maybe he would reinstate me just as a servant in his household, just somewhere where I could get enough food to eat, where I wasn't envying the hogs and their slop. He returned to his senses. And Jesus is very, very clear about what happens next? Look in verse 20 of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son embraced him, and kissed him. Now, you have to understand, in, in this culture, a man of station and, and standing in the community like this father obviously was, would never, ever allow his shins or ankles to be seen running down the road. Because they wore the cloaks and the long tunics that they wore. In order for this father to run, he would have had to hike it up and take off running. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, whatever your picture of God, whatever your concept or notion of who God is, make sure that it includes flying coattails. Make sure that you understand this is who God is. 
flying coattails. For a dad to see his boy a long way off coming home. Jesus doesn't go into a lot of detail here. It's, it's a story that he made up to make a point. But, but you, can, you can picture the father, maybe on the rooftop of his house, the flat rooftop that, that that area is known for, for who knows how long, looking down the road that leads home, looking for his boy. He, pr he probably had bought some binoculars at this point. And he sees his boy coming home. And he takes off running. This would have shocked Jesus' audience to see an elderly gentleman, a man of standing in the community, running down the road, particularly to greet this son who had brought such dishonor on his household. And, and, and the son receives the embrace of his father. And, and he starts to go through the speech that he had rehearsed. I'm not worried to be called your son if you could only find it in your heart to hire me on. And, and it's as if the father doesn't even hear the speech. Look at what happens next. Verse 22. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Flying coattails and a feast. This is who God is. This is how desperately he wants his children to come home. This is how he responds when they turn for home. And if this were only the only point of the story, it would beautifully illustrate the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and, and show God's heart for lost and wayward sons and daughters. But there, there's another layer to this story. It's fascinating how brilliant a communicator Jesus is. Because not only is he communicating the essence of the gospel, he also teaches and educates and enlightens the older brother types. And, and for us to understand this, you have to understand the context here of Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Luke tells this story, the prodigal son, but there were two other stories that were associated with it. He talks about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep but lost one of them. And he left the 99 who were safe and secure and he went out to find the one that was lost. And when he finally found the one lost sheep, he would have picked that sheep up and thrown him around his neck and brought him back to the flock. And this shepherd gathered his friends to celebrate the rescued one. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. 
there is more joy in heaven over one lost sheep returning than the 99 who were safe the whole time. He then goes on, he says, there was a widow. There was a woman who had 10 coins and she lost one of the coins and she turned her house upside down searching for that one lost coin. And finally, finally, in the last place she looked, she found the one. And when she found the one coin, she gathered her friends and neighbors around to celebrate the recovery of the one that was lost. And Jesus' audience would have been hanging on his every word. And then he goes into the story of the prodigal son. And, and the, the prodigal son is where he's bringing it home. Because it's one thing to lose a sheep. It's another thing to lose a coin. But you lose a child? Everybody, everybody there would have been sitting on the edge of their seats. But there's a fascinating detail that, that Luke includes at the very beginning of chapter 15. Now, the, the Bible was not written originally with chapters and verses. Those were inserted later on so we could find different addresses throughout the Bible. But in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, look at what Dr. Luke, Luke was a physician by trade. Look at what Dr. Luke included here. He said, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Isn't that a fascinating turn of a phrase? Notorious sinners. Tell your neighbor right now, you're a notorious sinner. Notorious S-I-N. Verse two. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people even eating with them, with an exclamation point. You see, the, the tax collectors, we, we've talked about this before, the tax collectors had a cush job. They were employed by the Roman Empire to collect the taxes that Rome charged on its citizens. But everybody knew that the tax collectors would assess more taxes than were due to Rome and then pocket the difference. It was a good gig. It was dishonest and deceitful and fraudulent, but it was a good gig. And these were the people who were drawn to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law looked down their moralistic, self-righteous noses at these notorious sinners with whom Jesus associated and even ate Allow me to introduce you to the big brother. The younger brother had gone off to the distant land. The younger brother had squandered his inheritance. But the big brother, Jesus said that the big brother had stayed home the whole time. The big brother was the one who was pursuing the path of self-validation, keeping all the rules, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's. He was towing the line. He was being a good guy. And Jesus says one day as he returned from the field, he heard music and singing and celebrating coming from the house. And he, he pulled aside one of his father's servants. He said, what's, what's going on at home? And the servant says, your brother's home. The, the one that we thought was dead. He's home and, and your dad has killed the fatted calf. We're, we're, we're whooping it up, home style. 
Watch how the big brother responded. Verse 28, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. He had a passion for Cabrito. <laughs> Understandable. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, isn't that just like a sibling? Make sure that mom or dad understands what the brother did wrong. He squandered your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Man, he's a piece of work, isn't he? He says, Dad, I, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've kept all the rules. I've done all the work. I stayed while he left. And, and by the way, wasted all your money on prostitutes. Did you know that? Did you know that? Did you know that? <laughs> now, he, here's the thing. Th this, is, this is so important. It's so easy for us to look at the big brother and go, how self-righteous can you be? And that's accurate. But the second we say that or feel that even internally, watch this. We're being self-righteous about self-righteousness. Ooh. That, Al Gore, is an inconvenient truth. <laughs> that stings, doesn't it? Ooh. People say, well, I don't go to church because there are so many hypocrites there. That's, yeah, there are. Here's how to answer that. We've got room for one more. Come on. <laughs> None of us has it all figured out. We all blow it. We don't try to, but we do. You've got blind spots. I've got blind spots. All God's chilling got blind spots. The big brother is merely used as an example to tell us to be careful. Be careful who you judge. Be careful who you condemn for their self-righteousness. Because the second you identify it in someone else, you exemplify it in yourself. The second we identify self-righteousness in somebody else, we've exemplified it in ourselves. The right answer is to say there, but for the grace of God go I. That's, that's, that's the deal. Now, it's interesting. We, it's easy, I think, for us to say that the younger brother obviously dishonored the father. He asked for the inheritance, treated him like he wanted him dead, didn't want anything to do with him. The older brother stayed home, followed all the rules, did all the work. But in this moment in particular, look at the dishonor of the older brother. Here the father has said, my son's home. We're, we're celebrating. Get him the finest robe in the house. Who do you think owned the finest robe in the house? Dad. And when the son put on the father's robe, there could be no doubt of his standing, of his being reinstated as his son 
But the older brother refused to go in. <laughs> have you ever pouted? <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever just, like maybe, you know, kind of like, no, I'm fine, I don't want to eat right now. No, I'm not going to come in. I don't want to go to your stupid party. <laughs> what he was saying was that the father's reinstatement of the younger brother was wrong. He was saying, in essence, that the celebration of his brother's return was a mistake on his father's part. See, Jesus is getting up in the Pharisee's kitchen on this one. He's going, you get all hot and bothered because I hang out with notorious sinners. <laughs> you don't even know the feast you're going to miss. You're going to miss the party if you don't humble yourself and join the party. Bring more people to the feast. Go out to the highways and the byways that my house may be full. But even with the older brother, Look at the compassion and the grace of the father. Verse 31, his father said to him, look, dear son, even in the middle of this temper tantrum out in the courtyard, he says, look, my dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have has always been yours. You've had access to it the whole time. But we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Don't you get it? Our family is whole again. We are complete. And yeah, we're going to celebrate. We've, we've killed the fatted calf. It's not just, just some little goat for you and two or three of your friends. We've invited the whole town and we got beef on the Barbie. This is legit. I, I really think that, that Jesus is, is, is getting at something so critical, both for the older brother types and the younger brother types. And, and, it, and it, they both have to do with home. I think what Jesus is telling the older brother type, the religious, the self-validating type, man, it's great that you keep the rules, but don't forget the relationship. Enjoy home. Enjoy the presence of the Father. Enjoy the pleasure and the power of the Father. You're not earning this thing. Grace is amazing because it's undeserved. Enjoy home. If, if you feel like your, your faith is dry, it's not because God moved. Just, just keep going. Just keep going. I wish I could remember where I heard this. I would give credit where credit is due, but I can't remember. A friend of mine asked his grandfather how he stayed married over six decades. Six decades. How many of you are under the age of 60? Let me just see a show of hands. I am, barely, but I'm there. Keep your hands up for just a second. Go ahead. These people were married longer than we've been breathing. I just want that to sink in for a second. And he said, Grandpa, how did you do that? 
The answer was brilliant. His grandfather said, I just kept coming home. I just kept coming home. It's not, not complicated. It's not easy. But it's not complicated. Keep coming home. Enjoy home. But, but if, you're a, if you're a wayward son or daughter, Jesus' message, I think, is equally apparent for you. Just come on home. Just, just come home. Come home to a relationship with the God who created you and loved you so much that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would never die but would have eternal life. Just, just come home. I think, I think that we have mistitled this parable of Jesus. Jesus didn't call it the prodigal son. That, that's what it's become known as down through the years. But I think it's more accurately entitled the prodigal father. Remember, prodigal means recklessly extravagant. And the father, the father in Jesus' story, our heavenly father is recklessly extravagant with his grace, with his forgiveness, and with his love. Welcome home. Come home to the reckless, extravagant love of God in a relationship with him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never done that, you've never stepped over that line of faith of trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for coming home into the amazing grace of God, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. You don't have to pass a test. You don't have to have perfect attendance at church for six months or anything like that. You just have to surrender and submit your life to the only one who will never take advantage of your surrender. By choosing to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That he is the son of the living God. That he died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. And when he rose from the dead, he did so with the offer of a new life. If you want to take hold of that life, then we invite you to pray right where you're sitting. Just talking to God, say something like this. Just say silently, say, Jesus, I need you. I'm coming home to you. I confess my sin. I claim, I accept your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward. I give you my life. And I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name. 
ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. But if that was your prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to help. We want to come alongside in whatever way that we can to help with what's next. This is just the beginning. And so I want to ask you to do a couple of things. Number one, if you would open up your program and begin filling out the connect card inside. About a third of the way down, you'll notice there's a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week. Once you've completed that, tear it off at the perforation along the fold. And when we dismiss in just a couple of minutes, if you would hand that card to one of our ushers, one of our hosts, that will begin a, a conversation that proceeds at whatever pace works for you. And then second of all, I want to ask you as our heads are bowed for just another moment, if you would just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand. If you just prayed and committed your life to Christ, would you just lift your hand and hold it up high in the air for just a moment? Your hand in the air is a physical statement of a spiritual commitment of your response to the amazing grace of Jesus. And as a church, we honor that. We celebrate that as a family. As you put your hands down, our family tradition is we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home.